This week, Ryan Fried from Brooks Running is with us to discuss quantitative security planning. Then Tim Morris from Tanium joins us to talk about the lines between personal and work blurring, as well as good MFA and bad MFA. And finally, in the enterprise security news, Cloudflare has 1.25 billion incentives to draw customers away from AWS. NetSpy raises 410 million for pen testing. Uh, Tynes extends their Series B an extra 55 million. Detectify and Eclipsium also raise funding. There's some big funding for Web3 startups, adversary emulation tools for blue teamers, and breaking news, the security market isn't out of money. It's just fine. The art of selling security to or selling to cybersecurity people, all that on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't leave the door open. Secure your APIs with the Curity Identity Server. Curity allows you to centralize identity management policies with a solution developed by an expert team using well-established standards. Curity facilitates scalable security for apps and websites by offering a unique combination of identity and access management with API security. Protect your users, secure apps and websites, manage API access. Start your free trial today at securityweekly.com forward slash Curity. Companies big and small are using AwareGo's Human Risk Assessment to measure the human risk factor in cybersecurity. This interactive solution allows companies to measure employees' knowledge and behavior across threat vectors such as phishing, passwords, sensitive data, and more. After completing the assessment, CISOs can identify vulnerable departments and roles and improve internal policies or procedures. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash awarego to start your free trial. Customers want fast and frictionless digital experiences, yet also expect protection against breaches, privacy violations, and fraud. Drive engagement by optimizing security and convenience to attract and retain customers. Use the PingOne cloud platform to build, test, and optimize digital experiences. The no-code orchestration engine weaves together authentication, user management, and MFA, all of which can enhance security, drive engagement, and boost revenues. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ping identity to learn more. And welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy Noodle Day. This is really going to boggle your noodle. I am your host, Tyler Robinson, and this is episode 291 recorded on Thursday, October 6th. Joining me is Tyler Shields. How are you other Tyler? Well, <laughs> noodle, Baker noodle <laughs> reminds me of the scene in, uh, in the Matrix when the Oracle says, you just wait, that's really going to bake your noodle. That's all I could think about. <laughs> Absolutely. Also joining me today is Kately, Katie Teetler. How are you, Katie? I'm well. I, I also enjoy noodles. Yes. You enjoy noodles too. Sure, why not? Means. <laughs> Maybe it means we noodle on what noodle day means. I like that. I like that. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit Security Weekly forward, forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all the new episodes down downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, our Discord server, which is very active, or follow us on any of the social media and streaming platforms. So for today's interview, 
Uh, today's topic is quantitative security planning from the front lines, and we're super excited to have Ryan Freed, Senior Security Engineer at Brooks Running with us today. Ryan holds a master's in security, has worked in security for nine years, and has, is working as an adjunct professor teaching security for the last seven years. Ryan currently specializes in security automation, network segmentation, and purple teaming. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, happy to be here. Excellent. You're uh, you're a veteran to this show. You've been on the show uh, two other times before, right? Yeah, it's been great. It's been a nice awesome. to, to talk from a practitioner point of view. Yeah, we're really excited about this episode. Honestly, the the whole strategic planning, road mapping uh, is really one of those things that is near and dear to my heart. And one of the things that actually makes uh, good security programs function. Uh, and then you're bringing in some qualitative uh, analysis to this. So... Uh, definitely excited about this episode. Yeah, it's been great. I think you know every year you work on your projects and you always have to think about what's next. And for companies that aren't subject to compliance like SOC 2 or PCI or HIPAA, it helps to have some kind of programmatic approach from the people who are actually doing the work of what's important and what you need to get better at. So how, how did this kind of come about? What was uh, some of the... Uh, reasoning behind trying to build a quantitative uh, analysis where you're looking at strategic roadmaps? So this is actually the first company I've done an exercise like this. Uh, my manager developed it from um, some training, I believe. But in most of the jobs I've worked at, we have looked to map to NIST-CSF or the CIS top controls. Um, so I think this was a way that he started doing a couple of years ago where we're, we look at the CIS top controls that we map to and we figure out how well are we doing at it and then how important it is um, that we improve about it. Do you think this kind of approach takes away some of uh, some of the academia that is often? I mean, you're you're an adjunct professor. That is often one of the things that you were talking about before the show is uh, the difference between academia and really the practitioner's viewpoint. Uh, do you think by doing it this way, you start to call out some of the things that tend to be an issue by just saying you know something like just patch all the things? That's great. Uh, what are some of the the caveats to to the frameworks and and what you guys are doing? Yeah, I think it really shows that you can't be perfect at everything. Certain things, say like if you're a three-person shop or a five-person shop, you're probably not going to score a 10 out of 10 for forensics or incident response. So it takes all the different controls into account and thinks, how good do we need to be at these things? What are the really foundational controls? Like for us, asset management, because you can't secure what you don't know about, Vulnerability management and having processes around those are really important. Maybe a penetration test isn't as important. You know, maybe you can do internal control validation. So there's different ways to approach it. But you're right, it does combat some of the academia, like just disable PowerShell. No one uses it. Well, that's not exactly true. A lot of tools use that in the background, and there are legitimate purposes for it. So you do get some of those caveats um, that are more realistic. I'd love to step back just a little bit too and kind of talk about your your day job and kind of where that roadmap has led and, and the progression of what Brooks Running has done, uh, as well as some of the, the trials and where you guys have grown to. Uh, being in the retail space, that offers a whole lot of interesting challenges that many uh, other verticals don't have to contend with. 
Yeah, I mean, being in the retail sector, ransomware is always in the back of our mind. I mean, map a lot of the important controls around that. So making sure people have least privilege access, you know, they don't have admin rights. A lot of workstations is super important as ransomware spreads. Another thing in what I've been involved with in the last year is network segmentation. Now in CIS top controls, or if you read about through Zero Trust, it might say segment all the things, including server to server traffic. But for anyone who's tried to do that, they know it's really, really hard to do that, especially with new applications coming in. So based on the CIS top controls, we took a look at what traffic is the easiest to segment, but also the most impactful. And with most ransomware starting from a phishing attempt, most likely on a workstation, we prioritized user to server network segmentation to make sure it doesn't spread um, to those on-premise or even cloud servers. So that's one way we took something as broad as network segmentation, but then, you know, in reading through the news and in my day job, we thought that um, the best bang for our buck would be looking at user to server. So I have a question, Ryan. Um, you know, you mentioned three-person shops, or you mentioned smaller shops when it comes to cybersecurity. I know a lot of uh, security folks that don't have a team, don't have a massive budget, are just starting to build their program. You mentioned asset visibility. You mentioned um, lateral movement. You mentioned all sorts of different approaches to cybersecurity or technologies you could apply into a cybersecurity program. Where do you start? What's the fundamental basis that you would want to start on if you were trying to build a program using your methodology? Yeah, it's a great question. So NIST and CIS have done a really good job in the last couple of years breaking down their top controls into categories. What are the absolutely need to have foundational controls? And then you start to move into tier two, tier three, as you're starting to mature as a program. So even with those 18 controls, or however many there are for NIST um, cybersecurity framework, they actually do break down uh, ones that every company should have. Things like multi-factor authentication, having some kind of antivirus on your machine, maybe EDR, but they do a really good job breaking that down based on the size of your company. Now that's uh, that's interesting that you bring up the ransomware side of this. Is that one of the major focuses of your guys's retail and kind of threat landscape? And how does that differ or kind of adapt based on the different verticals that you you tend to see? Absolutely. So I've come from the insurance verticals at a few different companies and a, um, a payment provider. So we thought about PCI and HIPAA. We were very heavily regulated, so that gave us the foundation of things that we were looking at. But, you know, like I'm sure most security companies look at, you need to also look at the threat landscape. So for us, most what we're most worried about is uh, financially moti motivated threat actors and ransomware. Because if we had any of our main system taken offline or our distribution center or different things, that can have a huge impact. Where we don't have that sensitive data that um, an insurance company or a payment provider company might have. So we always think about what are the crown jewels? What would be the absolute worst case scenario that could happen? And as of now, that's ransomware. So our manager reports to the board about uh, the key ransomware controls that he defined, where our progress is, what our roadmap is and such. 
because those are the most important. And the board members, you know, they read about ransomware in the news all the time. So it's something that's important to show we are thinking about it. And a lot of our efforts are driven towards that and mitigating the impact. What are some of the things that you're doing for ransomware mitigation? Because so often we hear companies relying really, really heavily on the end user. And as we know, that's not a hundred percent. That's never gonna, that's never gonna stop anything a hundred percent, nor, nor is it necessarily the end user's responsibility. So what are you doing? How are you combining your program? How are you trying to get as full coverage as you can? I think the key priorities over the last few years and going forward have been the backup and recovery process, making sure that's really solid that the backups are immutable and that someone inside our network couldn't compromise those backups. Um, and then testing the backups to make sure they actually work. Having some kind of EDR um, that can handle a lot of the commodity malware or ransomware is helpful. That user to network, um, user to server segmentation is really important. So it can't spread necessarily. Because if we just need to wipe a workstation, that's not a big deal. But if it's spreading rampant to like our domain controllers or other key servers, that's a different story. And then the last one I'll talk about is the combination of asset inventory and vulnerability management. You can't secure what you don't know about. Can't tell you how many pen tests I've had where we were solid until they found one server that didn't have EDR on it and they compromised that and they moved laterally. Um, but then the servers we do know about making sure they're up to date on patches and using vulnerability management <clears throat> to, to validate that. So those are the, the big ones we're working on. So, so I have, a, I have a follow on question. You mentioned you can't secure what you don't know about. And, and I love that line. I love that tagline. My, my company uses that tagline specifically. Um, what do you do as, as an organization to inventory and find everything? How do you track that? Yeah, it could be a challenge because you think about workstations and servers can be tracked differently. There are definitely times where we'll export lists and look at the total number of devices in our XDR or EDR and then compare that to, let's say, what our vulnerability management tool sees compared to um, what we have in VMware. So there are tools out there that are helpful with different API calls to consolidate a lot of that, but it's definitely challenging. You know, with any um, asset inventory, you need to make sure your tools are properly um, configured because if you have some type of scanning tool that looks into your inter internal network, did you put a firewall rule to also scan the DMZ, which are your important assets, which can be potentially externally facing? Um, so it can be a challenge and it's trying to make it as automated as possible. Yeah, I now, love that story. Kind of the, the automation and the integrations into what you have to be able to pull all those assets into a central repository makes a whole lot of sense. And and I'm sure Katie's chomping at the bit over there thinking, hey, Tyler, my company does that too. And she's not wrong. So that's why I had those specific questions. Uh, T-Rob, do you, uh, you want to take the next one? Yeah, I was just kind of curious how you go about... Um, prioritizing some of these strategic roadmaps. You guys don't really fall under HIPPO or PCI or you don't have a ton of PII uh, with inside the environment. So your crown jewels, you've identified those, but how do you go about uh, leveraging the CIS controls and prioritizing that based on the skills you have? I think some of the, the novelty of the way that you guys think about 
the priorities and the way that you're actually quantitatively looking at these uh, to build your priorities is very, uh, very important and is one of the more unique ways I've, I've actually seen someone think about it. Yeah, so that, this is where the quantitative aspect comes. Um, so you can look at the CIS controls. I think there's over 150 of them, so it might take an hour or two. But basically, each analyst or engineer will look at each specific subcontrol, and then on a scale of 1 to 10, they'll rank how good do you think we are at it um, and how good do you think we need to be. So let's say for asset inventory, or how important it is. So let's say asset inventory, we think we're a five, but we need, we think it's the importance is a nine. You know, asset inventory is foundational to any security or IT program. Um, so each analyst looks at each one. And then I think really the value of this exercise is the educational aspect to the whole team. So for instance, one of the sub controls is to make sure you have command line auditing enabled for Windows event log. And I was responsible for the control. So I said, yep, we got it. We were a 10. Um, it's important, but we do it. But uh, a couple other members of the team put a zero because maybe they didn't know that we had that. So that generates a discussion saying, oh, I wasn't sure that we did that. That's helpful to know. Because obviously in a five person security team, I'm sure that scales out a bunch. You can't know everything that's getting done. So it's really helpful to get that holistic in, uh, picture to see what we're doing uh, as a whole program. So at the end of the you know, scoring and such, our boss will look at the standard deviation, look for any outliers like I was just talking about, and then we'll discuss, well, we all think asset inventory is really important and we only score, let's say a three that's gonna make the strategic priorities for next year, and then so on and so forth. That helps you also identify not only skills gaps, but training and education gaps so that you have that ongoing and continual improvement. You're providing a great roadmap for uh, the juniors to move up to senior roles, to get cross-training with inside of that, uh, develop uh, the different teams and meshing um, maybe training and skills availability that they didn't even know was on the team. I think all of those things help to build a, a, a redundant security team that is much more cohesive uh, than just allowing a you know a self-review at the end of the year and then maybe a performance review by your manager. That doesn't really help the team and, and ongoing, especially from the, the whole team's strategy for the business. I think bringing the team into that and helping identify those for priorities that's what's making a big difference, obviously. Yeah, and I can give you an example off of that. So one of them being around incident response and forensics. We had tier one capability in-house, but it's something that, um, you know, while we have a retainer for a company that can come in in the event of a real incident, we identified that while we might score ourselves at a five, how we currently are, that's something where our boss thinks we can get to a seven. And that ties to our training plan where I can now easily justify some training class to improve my incident response or forensic skills. So you're right. It really does help identify cross-training and where we can improve our skills. And it's beneficial to our manager and the company because it, it helps mature our security program. Now, do you guys bring oh. in... Oh, go ahead, Katie. 
I was just going to ask about that prioritization because you hit on it, Tyler, and and um, and we sort of got there. But when you're talking about prioritization, yes, you can assess yourself on a scale of one to ten or whatever your your decision is. But how are those decisions being made? You talk about your team, but I assume there's also some more uh, global business-wide discussion going on as well because you know like you said earlier what's important to a retail company may not be the same thing for a telecom for a for a financial services company so how are those priorities decided based on business context yeah yeah you're absolutely right so while we'd like to be this as quantitative quantitative as possible there definitely is a qualitative aspect of it so ultimately it needs to feed up into Brooks uh goals as a company and align with what our CTO thinks and other people in the IT um, program within Brooks. So our boss will have an idea, you know, we'll talk through those, all those things. And then he'll talk with his peers and his boss, what we're thinking about our goals are, but then this is the important part, what resources we need from other teams, because as I'm sure all of you know, security isn't in a silo. A lot of the things that we need to do rely on other teams, um, either for consultation or to actually do the work. So while we wanna do you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 things, if we rely on the engineering team or service desk team, we need to figure out what their availability is and how we can fit into their plans. So what I hear you saying is that the security team needs to have communication and we all need to be better about communicating between the different business and asset owners in order to get something done. Absolutely. And that's been, I've spent more time than anything building relationships with people across teams like infrastructure and development and such, because if we need to look at like patching, we're not doing the patching, at least my my team is not. We need to work with their team and have them understand that it's a joint goal. If the goal was just ours to get, you know, all of our SEV 5s, SEV 5 vulnerabilities patched, that's great, but that needs to be a goal of the infrastructure team or whoever does the patching as well to give them some, some accountability, but then also give them the credit because they're doing a lot of that work. Have you seen that the the ease of which you're able to get things accomplished and the initiatives that security is pushing, have you seen that adjust and change based on the relationships you've been building? And as those relationships begin to solidify and you actually have buy-in from the other departments, do you see that that helps? Uh, and that's something that you guys can actually measure? 100%. This is probably my favorite thing to talk about because I mean, you're your relationships inside your team are really important, but the relationships across other IT teams or your business partners are just as important, if not more important. Realistically, the technical aspect is usually pretty easy, but you need to get them to understand this is why we need to do something. And in the in a previous show, I talked about control validation. Now I can actually show them if this isn't patched, this is what I can do. Uh, so having them have that joint accountability where it's on their roadmap and their uh, salary and bonus and everything are tied to it just like ours is great. Um, but, you know, it's also really important to have that relationship with them um, and build that trust. And I, I found, you know, one of the best things that I can do is anytime they ask anything of us, 
to do it as quickly as possible, obviously uh, making sure it's all correct. But I want to show them it's a two-way street. We just can't ask them for everything. You know, we try to jump on things that would help them as well. How do you get to that place, right? So it sounds like your company has really good collaboration. Security is baked into other processes and other business departments are bought in to security, but far too often that's not the case. So how would you recommend it if you were consulting with, or if you went to a completely new company where they see security as security's problem and you know you need that help and business collaboration? Yeah, I've seen a real shift from security where, you know, years ago when I first started, we were the bad guys where we would say, you can't do this, you can't do that. Where I see us more is being able to enable, like everyone wants to do their job securely, um, but I found some of the easiest ways. It's more of a challenge in the remote environment. When I was in the office, it was way easier and you can grab lunch with them and such. Um, but I just like to learn what they do. Now, a lot of people want to talk about what they do and they're pretty prideful. So I would set up meetings and talk with my peers on other teams just to figure out what do they care about? What are their goals? Um, how did it happen like before I was there? But really just nerding out with them and figuring out um, what makes them tick. Yeah, really, really sitting down with them. A free sandwich doesn't hurt either, but actually showing interest in them so that they'll also be interested in what you do and, and then yeah. create that relationship. And I think it's critical to come at why something needs to be done. You know, if I tell someone they need to enable command line auditing or PowerShell transcript logging or do all these things, I like to provide context to it. This is why we do it. This is how it help us. This is the threat that's coming against it. Um, and doing as much due diligence as possible. For instance, like we've seen, I think the VMware vulnerabilities out recently, they're the, one of the worst things you can do is just throw it over to the wall of them and say, here, figure it out. But if I can tell them this is remotely uh, remote code execution and it's being exploited in the wild and all these things, and we're actually on that vulnerable version, which not everyone always does, that builds trust. You know, I did a lot of work. So when I tell them about something, it's probably true where I find some people just throw vulnerabilities to them, have no idea if we use that software, no idea what version we're on and don't put any risk context with it. That just doesn't work. Right. That's the FUD. That's, that's the FUD approach versus, Hey, this affects us. Here's why. But I assume you're tempering your conversation. If you're working with it, it's one thing to talk to them about PowerShell. If you're talking to finance, completely different ball game. Yeah, absolutely. And that's our boss's job to talk to more of the executive leadership team. Uh, I think we do a really, really good job at Brooks partnering with the different IT and business functions. So they actually have a go-to person when something happens. So if there's um, a vulnerability or something for a SaaS platform that we use or some application they use, there's no question who to go to. They have their security person and it all funnels through there. So I feel like having someone, even if they just attend a meeting once a month on that IT or business team is huge. So they don't second guess who they should go to and then maybe they forget to even mention it. That's awesome. Now this is a, really a refreshing view and 
honestly seeing and hearing how passionate you are and the levels at which Brooks is is taking this and, and getting the buy-in from both the executives and a top-down and, and bottom-up approach, I think this really speaks to this actually working, getting the relationship, identifying the whys, uh, getting business buy-in and, and building those relationships for long-term strategy for the whole company and the betterment of the company is is really the way to do it. Yeah, it's been an awesome thing to see Brooks mature even over the last year and even before my time over the last few years. But just having those relationships, getting people to understand the importance of security and having them be our front line uh, has proven really successful for us. That's awesome. Well, Ryan, is there anything that you'd like to uh, to leave with our listeners, a final word, final thought? Uh, additionally, anything you want to plug or uh, recommend for our users to go check out about you? Yeah, so the final plug. So in the show notes, there should be a, a link to the CIS controls. It's not going to be perfect the first time. I think just looking at strategically, what are the biggest threats against you? What do you care about the most? Can't secure everything. But if you can make the really important things, the foundational things, lock solid, um, you're doing a good thing. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us, Ryan. Well, thank you. Appreciate you having me. And stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to discuss this year's Cybersecurity Awareness Month theme with Tim Morris from Tanium. When it comes to cybersecurity, the biggest threats are the ones you never see coming. SecureWorks detects and responds to cyber attackers' ever-changing tactics. We come armed with Tagus, a security analytics platform designed to recognize attacks and stop them before they do harm. SecureWorks, defending every corner of cyberspace. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash SecureWorks. Can your incident response technology collect from off-network endpoints? Xtero FTK Enterprise can. Endpoints are no longer located in a physical office, and organizations need a comprehensive investigation tool that enables holistic data collection and review. With FTK Enterprise, you can also scan for IOCs and MISP indicators. You can scan with Yara rules, and you can use integrations to trigger automatic endpoint collections. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Xtero for access to their white paper, Incident Response for a Remote World. The shift to remote and hybrid work over the past two years has accelerated application development on cloud infrastructure. However, securing these new assets has lagged behind. Qualys CloudView, the next generation of cloud security posture management, delivers an end-to-end multi-cloud security and compliance solution encompassing the entire application lifecycle from build to runtime. CloudView enables enterprises to assess their cloud security and compliance posture, identify risks and gaps, auto-remediate issues, proactively enforce best practices, and prove compliance in audits rapidly and efficiently. Identify your most vulnerable cloud assets by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcast and technical training at securityweekly.com slash on-demand. This interview is sponsored by Tanium. Today we're going to interview Tim Morris, He joins us to talk about this year's Cybersecurity Awareness Month theme, See Yourself in Cyber. Before joining Tanium, Tim spent over 20 years at Wells Fargo wearing all the hats. For 20 years, I'm sure that is the case. Most recently, he held uh, the lead cyber threat engineer and research teams within information and cybersecurity at Wells Fargo. Welcome to the show, Tim. 
Nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks for the invite and the opportunity. Absolutely. 20 years at Wells Fargo. That was quite the mouthful of uh, a huge team over there. I'm sure that was uh, a lot of great stories that happened. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. And I have to show my age, my gray hair, which there's no guess. But anyway, yeah, went there for a Y2K project to prevent the world from falling apart, packaging Windows software, the Linux and Unix guy, and then ended up for there for a very, very long time. So a lot of merger and acquisition work ended up in security. Turns out when you can package software, you learn, you get caught in all the malware outbreaks because you learn how to troubleshoot applications really fast. And so that malware career led into uh, incident response and, and cyber career. So it was very fruitful years, but I decided to give it up about 22, about in May of last year, after 22 years. And now on the vendor side, uh, which is kind of fun because now I get to meet with lots of different customers who have large and complex networks that, that I was used to working on and uh, and helping them out. So, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's very interesting. Switching that that hat from the uh, buyer to the actual vendor and the seller, I bet that provides some great insights, not only from the selling standpoint, but actually finding the customers that need the products and, and being able to sell that appropriately. Yeah, the sell side is very different to me, you know, being on the other side. Uh, I was very fortunate that Wells Fargo was on the cutting edge of, of cybersecurity stuff, especially around 2008 or nine when we started building the practice. Then I moved into it full time around at that about 2009, 2012. We made a huge change. You know, the trend kind of started for these fusion centers. You know, SecOps and and uh, security operations centers moved into fusion centers. It gives you the authority and the autonomy to actually take action during incident response. Because prior to that, it really was playing whack a mole and trying to go chase things and figure out which server belonged to which line of business and and then try to get the access you needed to do something about it. So doing that, but being on the technology side, because I'm an engineer at heart, you know, I got tired of these, you know, problems looking for or solutions looking for problems. So take an engineering approach where I actually define the problem itself. Um, we helped a lot of startups, you know, in the time I was there, and, and big companies still do that, right? They, you know, they they define a solution or a problem, they give the functional requirements, then a solution is built out. And being on the other side, you're always trying to debate whether or not the build versus buy when you have the resources and development team to go develop something or do you actually go buy something turns out for us other than some of the big commoditized stuff a lot of things we were looking for around incident response we had to do a hybrid approach where we would work with a startup give them a lot of functional requirements you know to meet the needs and i watched several of these companies either get bought up by large, larger companies or go public um so matter of fact, that's why at the bank, we had a pretty good, after a while, realized we were doing a lot of this. We started, a already had one, but revamped a patent program. So a lot of the engineers were able to get their names to patents and, and get those, those things out there. But you're right, coming to this side, uh, I still love solving business problems. And Tanium is a great platform to do that. Uh, I've used it in the trenches you know, for a long time uh, for incident response and then all the endpoint management stuff you can think about, whether that's compliant patching, software deployment, integrity monitoring, threat hunting, all those kind of things. It can it can do all those. But it is fun, you know, being on this side and just seeing the problems from a different light, seeing different levels of maturity within IT organizations or within security um organizations themselves. So it's been it's been quite the ride, you know, being on the side and 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 learning more about it from just from a totally different point of view, because 
you can get a little bit of tunnel vision when you're stuck, even though I was, again, very, very fortunate. We had a very forward thinking group, had a lot of um, a lot of resources to go do what needed to be done to, you know, to protect the bank and the customer's data and most importantly, money. Yeah, that's that's definitely very interesting. And that is invaluable, I think, from the ops side and sysadmin side, uh, even engineering mm -hmm. side, being able to take a lot of that experience and visibility and insight, bring that to the security side uh, where you spent a great deal of time building stuff and kind of the build versus mm -hmm. buy scenarios. Those are super interesting problems from a financial sector. Uh, but now getting mm -hmm. to see that from the vendor side and and a lot of different verticals, uh, is there any right. any kind of advice and, and kind of flow over the last 20 years that you can uh, offer someone that is maybe coming up in any one of those different verticals? Well, what I've what I learned is everybody wanted to go chasing the next best thing. So yeah, I I used to be a, a cert junkie for a while when I was not managing and leading teams. So going after whatever the next vendor cert was, I mean, I can go back to Novell. I did you know Cisco, Red Hat, Microsoft, and everybody would always ask, "Well, what do I learn first? You know, what do I need to learn?" And what I always tell folks, whatever discipline you're in. Let's say you're a developer, you learn the development skills themselves. Yes, you're going to learn languages and what they can do, but understand you know, how to do logic and do that kind of stuff. If you're going to be in the admin space, whether you're packaging or writing software, um, learning discipline in the operating system. I mean, you, I'd learned a ton just doing merger and acquisition back in the early 2000s, just writing scripts to be able to migrate you know, a set of machines from one domain to another domain. And so all the skills I learned there, all the networking skills, the operating system skills, how things work, then just led in to engrave a great foundation, if I should, I would say, you know, to a career in cyber. So when I would look at the build versus buy, um, yeah, there's a financial side of it that I kind of learned and figured out, okay, and a development FTE costs this much, it costs this much to run a triple environment, meaning production, dev, and test, tucks this much to to do handle the whole life cycle, that kind of stuff. And is that worth me going and buying a license to do that? Or is it worth me going and buying a service to do that? So those are things to learn. But I would still say back at the main skills, get the foundational stuff right. Understand, you know, something that you can build upon, whether that's operating systems, um, networking or development languages, or maybe you're not in a technical area at all. You're more in the business problem incident response stuff, you know, do that stuff and do it well. You know, as we always, it's kind of cliche to say servant leader, but be a leader in your own space so that you can go do these things. It just helps understand because when you get an organization that's running very, very efficiently, it really has a bearing on whether you go build or, or buy something. You know, am I good at running off the shelf software or am I better at, at buying it? Let the leaders you know, determine what's worth more to them, you know, to do that. But it's uh it's it's very very interesting. Now being on the vendor side, one of the reasons I chose to come work for a vendor when I retired, I wasn't retiring from working. I retired from the bank. Yeah, I had other banks call. I had other corporations call to go do security there. What was appealing was the fact I had got to the point with this company where um, there was a no contest of build versus buy. The technology had advanced so far, there was no way to really go build it or recreate it without not a huge level of expense. I mean, it was much cheaper to buy the platform and extend the platform than it was to go try to build something similar or different. So that's, that's, that's why I ended up here and at, at a vendor or at Tanya specific. That's very interesting. And, and just based on our last guest, 
talking about security operations that work well. I mean, you're spot on really wherever you're at, getting the understanding of how to do uh, whatever you're doing well, but taking that and using that for your experience. If you're in a business, you're learning the business. If you're building relationship, each place you go, build that relationship because you get the security, you need all of that political capital that you can get uh, and maintaining those relationships to, to do that well. So I think that's uh, that's amazing advice. You said a good point, political capital. I don't think that's ever overused. Matter of fact, when I have bought technologies that I've had to spend political capital, meaning stake some reputations that, hey, we're going to spend this money, but I'm going to do this for you, meaning I'm going to remove this agent or I'm going to take this process away. Or I'm going to improve this process. And that's a good, that's a big political mover to go do that and state that you're going to do that because oftentimes projects get done. And even if they're on time and under budget, people don't really go back and measure the ROI to see if you did what you promised. I can I can promise you this though, if you didn't do what you promised, your career kind of stagnates. It doesn't go any further. But when you do do it well and you do it in a way that people appreciate working with you, even if in your some kind of adversarial working, you know, you get to an agreement, um, th- it only helps. And in this industry, uh, people joke around the security industry or the IT industry being incestuous. You know, people do leave, they go to other companies, and guess what? They show back up in other companies together. You know, people end up working, you know, they disperse, but then they congregate and they disperse and congregate. So over a 20 year career, you get to know a lot of different people who you work for. So be careful about bridges you burn, you know, always be there to help the process, to help what it is you're doing to to grow the business, to do what it is you need to do and just be a good person doing it. I can't state that enough because that it only helps, not only helps the company or the team you're working with or working for, it helps you in the long run as well. Yeah, that, that long run and that that relationship building for a long-term strategy uh, for not just your personal career, but for each of the companies you go to, mm-hmm. uh, we we always stress that you just you really just need to be a nice person. That's that's a pretty easy thing to do. You make sure that you build someone yep. up if they're ready to leave, support them in that leave because at some point you'll probably end up working with them again. It's a pretty small group for those of us that have been doing this for two or three decades that. Uh, you're going to run back that. into them, so make sure you do it well. <laughs> I've seen that and too often. Of- I've had a couple. I'll go ahead. I was going to say, I've had a couple times in my career where the toughest conversations I received were people that were upset that I was taking a different opportunity, even, even within the same company. I was just moving to a different team or whatever. Uh, the best conversations are the ones who want to help and support. So when I led a team, I was always encouragement. I'm not telling you go get your resume better, but I'm telling you how to get your resume better. I'm not telling you, hey, I want you off the team. You're doing a great job. But if you need help advancing your career, let's go. You know, I'll help you do that because it's going to come around. I know we want to shift gear. Let's talk about this cybersecurity stuff and about um, I love the tagline about blurring the um, corporate and private identities and and the blur between uh, uh, shades of gray of MFA, I think is what we were calling it. So. Yeah, Adrian got real clever, clever with shades of gray for MFA. It was uh, speaking of political capital, you start to talk about, um, you know, bringing your own devices, blurring the lines between consumers and uh, your enterprise networks. Uh, So really talking about how enterprises have a handle on identities and company data and that company data living on personal devices or uh, dealing with identities on personal devices. Do you think we're Mm -hmm. getting to a better place today or are we much further out in the West than we actually thought at the beginning. And kind of what have you seen over the last 20 years having to deal with this kind of merger and, and blurring of the lines? A couple of things. I mean, just shortly, we're a lot further than I thought we would be, but at the same time, a lot, a long way from where we need to be. 
meaning this stuff accelerated and we can go back just before you know there was an iphone and tablet so the first shift is this consumerization of it you know and there's kind of a as a rule we don't mix the two you have your personal device you have your work device and you never mix the two matter of fact our networks are built around it you know we did vpns then we get to this thing i guess about 10 years ago when the byod stuff started kicking off and then what do we do with that and directly because it's you know in the the literal definition of a zero trust from a network perspective was that whole feudal kingdom the moat and drawbridges you get stuff you know once you're inside you're trusted everywhere inside and now we got to get to this uh which is a very explicit trust um well implicit trust now we get the explicit trust where we really can't trust anything meaning you can only you have to trust each process and that ties back to identities who is it that's making this call is it an API? Is it a machine? Is it a user? So when you go back to the BYOD space, what we have seen is that time people trying to delineate between their personal identity, their persona, and their professional one have really started to blur. And when COVID hit and you send so many people home, I know for us, we had about 60,000 remote capable workers that within three weeks, we accelerated or increased to 215,000 remote workers, that's a huge shift in the threat landscape. So that that's the piece is like, where do we keep them? It's easier if you can say, this is a corp device, was easier, I don't say it's easy, it's easier if you can say this is a corp device and you only log in with this device. But even say a vendor like Apple, which you have to have multiple IDs if you want one for the other, and you got misinformation, you got corporations say, do not create an ID under our account that's personal <laughs> or don't use your personal ID. And they're conflicting, right? They're, they're, uh, it's a paradox and you're trying to figure out what to do. And I just don't think we're clear on that because you got companies with liability and trying to keep their policy. So, you know, where does BYOD fit? And BRDs, you know, that, that toothpaste is out of the tube, <laughs> you know, it's happening. So with also with the manifestation of cloud and things coming in, now it's more identities per you know service so we've got this big move and have had for some time with sso in you know, a single sign-on you know to get folks going so we we changed and we we say okay now you gotta have complex passwords now we need to use you know otp one-time passwords and we need to move to mfa and the attackers are moving you know yes there's still dictionary attacks there's still you know password spraying and all that kind of stuff happening and it's still successful sadly because people have weak, you know, but in, in places where we have strong passwords, we have started to see the shift where the attackers are starting to take advantage of OTPs and understand that, hey, I can do an MFA bombing. Um, I think it was the Uber, the Rockstar hack recently. You know, it was, I think they sent a message outside of a normal band through WhatsApp and said, hey, this IT department, those push notifications you're getting, please hit one, you know, just accept it. We'll be done here in a second. And then they get in. So that's kind of a worst case scenario. Well, not a worst case, it's a bad scenario that what happens, but this identity crisis, if you will, it is, is a real problem that companies are trying to figure out what to do, what to deal with or how to deal I think, with, I should say. I think you're spot on. And I think this is, we're at the precipice where this actually becomes a bigger issue than we're even letting on. The, the risk to the business, I don't think has been properly articulated to the executives. and. Frankly, even the executives themselves are part of a part of the issue or or outside of IT and security. We have executives that are not wanting to carry more than one phone. Uh, it is mm -hmm. the 
norm today to have a single phone, have your company email on there with your Gmail uh, that also has TikTok and you know Candy Crush or whatever Chinese game is is capturing all of your clipboard traffic. Mm-hmm. So we have this this reliance and kind of smoke and mirrors that Apple's a secure device, Google's a secure device, it's fine, they're sandboxes, this is a modern device if we keep it updated. All these things that we are now relying on and making the norm, uh, and then additionally adding on the single sign-on effect with MFA, just because we have MFA, now you know we're secure. All of these things are fine, when in reality it is probably the exact opposite. The attacker doesn't have to go into your network where you have good visibility, good EDR, good detections. Uh, they're leveraging the single sign-on, they're using the SaaS applications to get to the exact same intellectual property, the exact same data that's going to cause uh, access into the on-prem devices. And we're leveraging things like SMS pushes and or um, MFA that is, I would say, less than secure, but is providing a nice warm fuzzy. So we've got the warm fuzzy of the vendors. We've got the warm fuzzy of having our phones available and personal accounts with work accounts. We've got the warm Mm -hmm. fuzzies of MFA there. So I think we're, are we on the precipice of having a disaster that cannot be remediated without uh, a lot of uncomfortable conversations with most of the business? Well, I think what we're having is, First of all, it's better. I would much rather have MFA of any sort than than no MFA. Um, what we're doing is again, it's cat and mouse. You know, attackers are going to skate to where the puck is. You know, they're going to figure out what's around that. So, is it smoke or mirrors or not? I want to go back to your point of the phone. Now we have companies. You know, it used to be reimbursing for a phone. Be like you were assigned a phone, or they reimbursed it. Now we're somewhere in the middle where you know some companies no more. I mean, you're going to have a personal phone anyway, so we'll give it. So they go back to the personas like you're talking about with the sandboxing and hope that does anything. And that's presenting some problems for companies too. Um, I can't get into specifics, but I know there's lawsuits where comp- companies are suing employees or vice versa on who has access to that data. It's my device, it's corporate data. So there's, a, you know, and I don't know what the precedence has been set there. I just know that it's opened up a whole new can of worms. And anytime you do that and lawsuits you know happen you know there will be regulations later on uh if they're not here already on on how to do that but back to the identity piece that that, that's the piece and when you say identity it means different things to different people i'm thinking about personas it's you know everybody said uh when you're growing up you know lying is hard because you got to remember too much and if you just tell the truth Well, multiple identities is hard, you know, like, okay, which one did I use for this? I mean, it's almost imperative now you have to have a password manager, you know, just because, I mean, I was looking at mine the other day, there's like 198 different IDs in there. It's like, it's it's a lot, you know, I want to keep separation. So if we just look, let's say, for example, for our personal life, you know, in a corporate world, we say, protect your crown jewels, understand your perimeter, you know, use the principle of least privilege. When your personal life, what's closest to you? Yeah, your, your family, your friends, but in your identity, what means the most? It's your banking stuff, it's your healthcare stuff, then it's maybe your social stuff and it kind of moves out. So it makes sense, like from a financial perspective, that my ID that I use, even though I may share it among my personal things, and maybe I don't, maybe I have separate Twitter IDs and Facebook or Instagram, which again, is a whole lot to kind of keep up with if you want to have nine multiple personalities (laughs) as in nine identities. But you need to make sure that for the, say, the banking stuff, that I've got my credit reports locked, that I have alerting on every banking application that tells me when money was you know, removed. You have to monitor your own security, so to speak. And I want to make sure the authentication of there 
is a complex password with some sort of MFA on there. Uh, so I limit what you call the blast radius if somebody gets that. So you say you get some uh, identity report that says your email addresses and password have been found on the dark web, which is probably 60% of us. Well, then you need to make sure where else is that ID being used. And if you're not tracking that, like in a password manager, then you're just kind of blind because you need to go, you may not be able to change the ID because it's logged in, but you can definitely change the password or the authentication mechanism in there. So what we're seeing is this problem and what I've just described is all in the consumer space. That's your personal life. Now, when we tie that in the corporate side, it brings a whole new attack vector. I know when we sit, we there's a certain risk calculation or calculus that goes on when you're sitting where you do this and you don't have a choice. We got to send people home to work remote because we can't bring them in. Our knowledge workers are there. So it's not, are we going to increase more risk? We know we're increasing risk. It's like, how do we calculate that risk? And what are the risks? So I remember going through this exercise. So what do we need to do to take a device and send it home that somebody's going to use? Even if it's a corporate device, what are we going to do? Before it was in an office, there was a badge system to get in. So physical security you know, is better than home security, or, and some would even argue argue that. But now it gets home, what does it need? Well, you better make sure your AV, EDR, XDR is up to date. Encryption is turned on. Your VPN software is there. What kind of VPN? Is it going to be a user-based VPN? Is it going to be a machine-based VPN? Is it going to be a combination of both? Those kind of things. And then, But what we learned and lost was it goes home. I still can't protect it because I don't have access to the IoT devices in the home. Meaning, what if somebody takes an unpatched IoT device, say router or modem, router or modem, uh, use, misusing the word modem there for anybody who's been in the industry a long time, and somehow does something where they can affect DNS. So instead of me logging into Office 3 or MS365, I'm logging into a rogue site and my credentials were just, um, just grabbed. So that's a whole nother risk that it oftentimes gets accepted because okay, hopefully the VPN is safe enough and people will recognize it. Let's just, we'll go back to the next level or whatever the defense in depth is. Whereas, okay, this machine gets, you know, hacked. It's, in, you know, we, we can brick it. You know, we have all the ability to do that. So that's where this gets really, really fuzzy. And again, we're not there yet, but what you're alluding to, it, it's not all smoke and mirrors, but it, it it does cover a, a lot of the issues, but there's still more work to be done, especially when we get in the identity space. Again, I've talked about personal, I've talked about a corporate device, but now when you have a personal device, we're using a corporate identity, again, it changes the attack surface, it changes uh, or the attack vectors and the risk that you got to calculate on whether you know you're going to do it or not. And we're seeing hacks, you know, from that, you know, but because that's going on because things just bleed together. Yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised we did not see additional hacks, or maybe we did and we just didn't realize, uh, you know, a lot of the botnet traffic or a lot of the, the stealer malware and, and its implants, like having everybody have those corporate devices at home, you've got a hostile network, you've got kids doing homework on poorly secured school websites, uh, doing research at home, um, you've got the iPads, you've got the the phones of, of the kids, the wife looking at TikTok, all of the things that, that would just be 
hard to accept from a risk standpoint in a corporate network that we've had to adjust to. And I think that's where a lot of the zero trust conversation got pushed so hard. Uh, mm. And really that kind of got, that got skewed where we're talking about zero trust from a, a foundational and mindset uh, and pillars of, you know, good defense in depth or micro segmentation back in the day, like just doing good security. And we tried to put a, a blinky light box onto something that was, was more mm. of a mindset, but that was, I think a lot of the reasoning of why that sprung up so quick was so much money. But now taking it back to how do we how do we think about that from a, a business risk standpoint of not only bringing your own device to work and having corporate and public or uh, your your personal personas blurred, but how do you actually think about things like corporate coming from to and from the remote work where we have a hybrid now and you're introducing those insecure devices or devices that have been in hostile networks back into the environment uh, without having the ability to do in-depth check at scale? Yeah, I've heard the debates on, for example, if it's a personal device, what can the company put on to protect it? You know, whether that's an agent like Tanium or an EDR XDR tool. You know, I remember a, a major breach at the beginning of COVID with one of the suppliers and they were being issued um, corporate devices. But when they got hacked, it was like, we're coming to VD, they're just going to go into VDI farm and we don't care what they have on it. That didn't work because that device was compromised. So therefore we had to give them devices and, and they get in there. So it gets into that kind of debate argument. But it, go, it does go back to zero trust, as you, were, as you were talking about. And I think people don't realize they're using it as much as we think we are, is that we do not trust the device anymore. It, 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 that's basically what you have to get down to. So um, the, the endpoint, when I, when I said earlier, the user is the endpoint. If you, if you walk that back to where it goes, obviously the browser is the endpoint because we have a lot of applications you know, in the cloud that are just going through the browser. Matter of fact, the days of thick applications it, they said this 20 years ago, we wouldn't have thick applications. It's almost like we're doing full circle, the mainframe, if you get back, back to my age, where every device becomes a dumb terminal and you just go back to the mainframe, except there's multiple mainframes in this case. There is, you know, the Dropboxes, Office 365s, there's all these other, other devices. So, but what that means is uh, patching is never more important. I mean, we find, you know, malicious extensions in browsers all the time. Their acting is men in, man in the middle, for lack of a better term, or person in the middle, you know, however you want, you want to say that. So keeping those things up to date, you know, is is super, super important. But again, you get to the point where you're not trusting it. And you got to remember, these aren't just blatant, okay, I don't care about security. What they are is there's a cost-benefit ratio. And somewhere along the line, it's like, well, if I believe I can manage the risk, Meaning I can manage each one, say the processes that are getting to the application, whether that's your, you know, CRM, you know, customer system or your, you know, your Salesforce, you know, sales system or your, you know, ticketing system. And I'm managing authentication in each one of those. And hopefully you remove some friction by doing some SSO, but it's on a device as you use the word hostile is like, well, the device can be hostile, but the communication channel between the two can be secured, you know, with the encryption or whatever. And I'm not saying that we're completely there yet. And I don't want to sound completely naive, but that is exactly kind of where we're at. It's like, no, I'm going to secure the communication channel between the hostile device. So I don't care if it's hostile. I know that I'm authenticating this process or this ID, whether that be a service, a user, or a machine. Uh, and, and that's good enough. It's not worth the cost 
to go buy another degree and put in the old legacy stuff of the moat and drawbridges that we have before or the feudal kingdoms or airport security or whatever an analogy you want to use. Do you, do you think that's some of the reason why we haven't seen the FIDO2 and the physical hardware keys take off as as fast as uh, and the whole passwordless uh, kind of movement take yeah. off and, and get adopted by many of the corporations is because uh, the cost benefit for one of getting the the tokens out there and then the usability and understanding from not just the the end user but the the technical side of this stuff uh, gets very difficult to understand for for many people i mean that's why we have sim swapping and and we still have phones even though that cost benefit payoff uh, is something that we can quantify uh, i don't see as close a quantification to why we're not using the the password list yet other than the adoptability i think we're getting there i think we are going to go there so anything we can do to remove the friction of the authentication i use the analogy of a house you know why do we have doors and windows on houses we have so we can enter and we can see outside but they're there to protect right you could live in a house without doors and windows but you know you get wet and cold and or hot depending on the case and then what's the first thing you do when you put on there? You put latches and locks. Well, those latches and locks are an inconvenience. If you think about it, passwords are inconvenience, you know? So security always being the department of no, it's like, how does security enable the business? But back to your point, what happens is if we can remove the friction to remove, to move to good biometrics that works, whether that's a face ID or fingerprinting. And yes, there is a cost, not just the physical cost of getting the transition done to that, but remember, we're still dealing with systems, even old systems are young, you know, 20 year old systems that are legacy. When I'm talking about systems, I'm talking about applications you have to get into for them to ramp up to new authentication mechanisms. Almost every time there's a new authentication mechanism, there's a layer in between to make it backwards compatible. So that's the real cost and why I don't think we've moved much as fast as we should move. Um, yes, there is a cost of physical stuff. But anytime you do a physical key, but and I'm a fan of you know FIDO and, and UB keys and that kind of stuff, but it does add a different level of friction, but it is more secure. Uh, but every time you do that, there's a technical aspect that you spoke to that we got to train users to do that. But then having managed exception processes before, how do you hand out, determine who has the keys it needs to have? You know, this is the whole IAM process. How do you handle one that gets lost, you know, or one that gets stolen? And having those processes, so those those have to come along and catch up to speed, which makes it you know a little you know more difficult. If you think of help desk of the old, you know eighty percent of their time was spent reusing passwords. So we go to self password, you know self service models of password resets. Well, you got to get to that level with these other devices as well. You know, like how do we do that? You know, I'm sitting, you know, in an airport somewhere and I've lost a key and I can't log in to a critical system. You know, how do I handle that? You know, right now with passwords, there's way to you know, to give a one-time password to do that. You've got to make these legacy systems. So that's part of the reason, one, the cost of it, but two, the, the cost of transition to it and the processes required to make that happen. I do think we'll get there. I, I think, you know, again, the more we can do to, re to reduce the friction. So authentication is as simple as walking to a door and it opens for you to speak figuratively and know you're the one that, that has access to open that door or not, um, you know, we'll get there. I mean, it might sound kind of sci-fi. I was at a conference a couple of years ago, what, three years ago before COVID, and a guy had a thinking cap who could actually think his password and it would enter it into the keyboard. It was like some crazy stuff. I mean, I don't expect we'll be walking around full of caps, but my point is we'll get to almost a sci-fi where that friction reduces and you will see the adoption. Um, 
you know, to be able to do that. So for in the in the interim, for places that do not have the ability to kind of get to that that place of a more secure MFA, now that we're speaking about you know the cybersecurity awareness month, um, there are protections for things like SIM swapping. You have your CFO, you've yep. got high high value, high target accounts that uh, still want SMS, still want the push notifications. What are some of the things that we can do to add layers of security to the kind of legacy MFA or non modern MFAs? It depends on where you get. At some point, those level of that you've got to take a different approach. Um, you know, there I used to manage a program that was a DR, you know, disaster recovery BC program. What? How do we run things if the internet goes down? So how how do you do that? I mean, we had to be in contact with carriers. Like, how do they do it if something's down? What's their backup plan for incident responders? You know, you know, frontline folks like you know law enforcement, you know, emergency services, those kind of things. And you do almost have to go out of band. And it, I know it's it's inconvenient, but if you have somebody, say, whose face is on several thousand ATMs, you have to protect them differently. Uh, personally, you have people, I was uh, talking with someone who's big in the crypto space, and a lot of folks who do that have had the SIM swap, you know, a couple times and have tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousand dollar drink. You have to protect that differently. Uh, whether that's going with a different service that does not allow any kind of SIM swap, which is a whole different process. Um, it's, it's very different when you get to that level. But for the, for the average users, there are some basic things you can do, um, meaning there you can put SIM, SIM swap protection in with the carriers now. You need to go ahead and do that, you know, whether that's using pins or, you know, or whatever, or put an extra layer of questions or security to do that to make sure that can't happen because the more we rely on MFA, not just the SMS push notification, but if you're using an authenticator app, you know, Google, Duo, Microsoft, you know, that secret's on that box. Of course, you need something else, you know, to get to that. But, you know, that's basically three layers of protection and you want to make sure that can't get moved to another device. So you got to put the protections in there. So anybody who's going through that process needs to really think about that and then do the exercises. You know, if you don't have a red team, you know, at least, you know, go go read or if you have the resources, hire somebody to figure out, okay, if I knew nothing and I could get to that executive's phone or that critical IT admin's phone, what would it take for them to do a virtual SIM swap, so to speak? And a SIM swap is kind of the wrong word, but I could take over their persona. What would it be? And then by doing that, you'll learn where the playbook falls short and where the program may fall short and what you need to do to, you know, to implement that. Um, back for uh, our stuff, even some of our top level executives, we would still run separate VPNs into their homes, you know, just didn't let them use the other stuff because they were such high value targets, you know, people were, you know, were after them um, all the time, you know, with, with certain attacks, you know, got stories I can't share, but the point is they're, um, that that's there and you do, you just have to treat them differently. And then for the, the IT admins, sys admins, do an impact analysis on your, on your thing. Not, I mean, I, I work for Tanium. We have a, a way to do that, to see what, what your least privilege really looks like essentially, uh, or you mm -hmm. run a tool like Bloodhound and see, Hey, if I take over as this administrative assistant or as this packager or as a salesperson, what do I have access to? You would be surprised at what how much lateral movement can happen just because 
we're really good at giving access. We don't do a good job, we as an industry, of taking access away when it's no longer needed. And then they're just simple mistakes made. Somebody puts, you know, a sales group and uh, an admin group, domain admin groups. Like it can never happen. We need to be testing for that all the time. You know, that those are things you can check all the time uh, in a continuous basis. Um, it's and honestly, when you look at it, the things that get us and the breaches and the attacks. I, I think I read a report last week for the first time earlier this week. Actually, vulnerabilities are number are have kind of eclipsed the lead over stolen credentials. Um, so making sure your stuff is patched, um, you know, exchange is reared its ugly head again for on-prem exchange and not having a patch for that. But VPN concentrators and exchange, I think were two of the biggest reasons, you know, companies are getting attacked. And then you still have what works, the phishing stuff. Uh, I was doing a session yesterday with a, uh, with a big employee panel that was doing for, for a large, um, large company. And that's why I was telling them, just be diligent, you know, make sure that if you get email or a phishing attack and it evokes any kind of emotion, stop, because that's the trick. You know, I get you to push this or get you to go to this link. And now it's not even, yeah, you still have the phishing emails, but now you get the SMS stuff that just kind of prompts a conversation, you know, to try to lure you in. I was dealing with one an hour ago on LinkedIn. Somebody, I, I could tell they're just trying to probe and, you know, and get information, do, do reconnaissance. So you just have to be diligent and just realize that people want your access, whether you think you have access or not, people want it. So just, again, be diligent when you get random stuff, you get emotional stuff. Even when I get legit stuff that says, hey, this charge showed up on your credit card. I never click on the link in that. I always just go to the app or go to a web browser and log in and go look at it myself. I never click links. It just And that's a habit that's kind of hard to get into, but but it serves everyone wise uh, to doing I think, that. I think that's a, a great point for Cybersecurity Awareness Month right there. Like Just mm -hmm. be diligent. Realize that every little person in the organization matters. Your creds matter. You matter. And, and try to make sure that you're doing that diligent work to not be the entry point, to not have the credentials that that move uh, an attacker to a better position on the network. And those right. tabletops and, and looking at the credentials and, and the points in network and all the different identities really does matter from an attacker standpoint. That's the the single way we use, where we look for just any little breadcrumb to start pulling on a thread. Without the thread, we really have no, no other way in. And that's where right. you get into things like JWTs, tokens, cookies, all of the things that are on your device that have meaning that you would never think about. Those are all in the back end for your single sign-on. Those are all with inside the browser, uh, with inside your password manager. All those little bits and pieces uh, are something that can lead to an organization's downfall. And I think actually yeah. Katie had a question for us. Sure. I actually have a question going back a little bit, but I do want to pull on this thread of, of Cybersecurity Awareness Month because I've been in, in conversations about this separately and we're talking about the end user and what they can do and don't click on this and you know don't download right. that and if you get an alert check on this it, that's all very well and good um but there there are compounding issues right because in our daily lives we get legit pdfs and attachments we get legit links we get things that we need to do in our daily lives and it's really hard sometimes when you're moving quickly to differentiate i mean it's one thing if if the email says i need you to urgently do xyz signed your ceo and you never have 
any contact with your CEO, right? But if it's right. a really crafty attacker, attacker, then they're going to know that they're going to be a little bit better than oh my god, I right. need you to urgently, you know, click this link and pay your overdue fee or whatever it is. So how how do we balance that? Because I'm of the belief that it's not about awareness anyway. I'm of the belief that it's about behavior. But what are we training our users to do when we tell them don't click links and then in the next breath? You know, HR says, please fill yeah. out this benefits form. It's open enrollment next month. How do we yeah. balance that? Bingo. Uh, and that used to be one of my pet peeves is because we we try to train folks to get into that behavior. And then we would have internal stuff that would send it. I manage a proxy. So I would see these all the times because I would have stuff blocked. And we're like, we just sent out this survey and users have to get to it. I'm like, well, but you didn't go through the process to make sure that that was legitimate and could get through because... You know, but you're you're right on, Katie. I mean, that's it, it's a problem as a user themselves. From a corporate standpoint, I I always say just err on the side of caution. If you get something that okay, it is open enrollment, and you get it, or you get an email that says, "Hey, um, your bonus check is going to be delayed," or "We're sorry, your bonus check the last time was was more than it should have been." Um, here's some information to go correct that. I'll just report it, even if it's legit. The the folks inside the company who know they're legit, one, can go correct the behavior on the other end, meaning, hey, we need to do a better job, which honestly sometimes means being more being less convenient, meaning we don't send links, you know, that we send instructions to go do something and not links, you know, to go to go do them. And again, I know having managed a red team, <laughs> there's ways around that. But that behavior balance, but I would say in the spirit of awareness month, is it, you know, everyone is a leader. Everyone has to lead themselves. And that is to be aware of your own security sphere, not just your work life, but in your private life. What is it that you expect, you know, to hear? Is that your parents, you know, your, your children's um, teachers, your local civic club or church or whatever? Know what it is and know what you can expect and help change the behaviors then. But always try to be on, I get a request, but instead of being just clicking through it, I'm going to go around and validate it. There's a validation process, which is not that hard, honestly. You know, it's super easy if I get a text that says, hey, we need you to check this charge, clears a link, for me to just immediately pull up the, the banking app and look at the charge versus clicking on that SMS message. And that is a behavior that does have to change. But I, I do get it. You get all these messages inundated, but it either is... All, the ones that tend to work always evoke some kind of emotion. Yeah, there's the urgent ones. We get those from our quote CEO wanting gift cards because yeah, the country those are laughable. They're that they're that bad. But then there are some that come in that that do sound very you know very legit, or they're a lead into meaning there's not a link there. They're just trying to get you to start the conversation, and then maybe two or three texts later there will be a link or a phone call. You have to just be diligent, not, you know, and not get into those. And I know that's not a, I wish there was a way to say, hey, don't do it. But short of not having a phone and not checking email, you know, you're going to be a target. You just have to get really, really good. And for all the admins out there, we do have to accept the fact that people are going to click links. So we need to make sure we have the correct um, defense and depth in place, whether that's at a network layer, that's at an endpoint layer that that can kind of catch some of that stuff. I caught mul multiple things with EDR tools, with um, email filtering, with uh, web filtering, 
that would catch over 90% of the stuff, you know, would come, come through, but users themselves, I, I can just say, just be diligent and realize that you are a target. And again, I go back to that, um, uh, the least privileged stuff on the corporate side, uh, for those, ad, those are doing the admin work, make sure that if a machine or user does get compromised, understand what could happen if they did, you know, that that's part of understanding your tech service. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's uh, excellent advice and really kind of ties this cybersecurity awareness. Be diligent, know that you're a target. If you're an admin, work to that least privilege, really identify the, the threats that you have. And we can all work on this together, relying on technology to cover our butts and, and be the people uh, that are there as the, the front lines. Uh, really, it's everybody's job to, to be there, but that means realizing that people are there and going to make mistakes. So, Tim, we really do appreciate you coming on uh, today and joining us for Security, Enterprise Security Weekly. Thank you all very much again for the time and opportunity. Appreciate it. Be happy to anytime. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, our listeners, make sure you uh, visit securityweekly.com slash Tanium to learn more. And we'll be right back in a few moments to go over this week's enterprise news. Managing and protecting the world's grueling number of endpoints, enabling Tanium's customers to see, control, and protect every endpoint everywhere. Tanium's mission is to provide certainty in uncertain times with the industry's only converged endpoint management. Trusted by the U.S. military and the majority of the Fortune 100, Tanium helps manage and protect nearly 30 million endpoints. Tanium, the power of certainty. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more. Attacks can't be prevented, but they can be stopped. Modern cyber attackers have already made it inside your network, but you have the upper hand. Find and eradicate threats with ExtraHop network detection and response and shut them out before real damage is done. Learn the advanced techniques attackers are using and how ExtraHop stops them with a live attack simulation. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. That's extra H-O-P. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of our shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review the suggestions monthly and we'll reach out once we review it. And now for the Enterprise Security Weekly news. All right, guys, there is a lot of news in here. Some very interesting fundings. So let's get going. I think one of the uh, the big ones I was the Cloudflare. This is a very interesting approach. I've actually not seen another company take where they're taking a bit of their funding, uh, 1.25 billion, and they're using that to get startups onto their own platform. Um, have you seen this before, Tyler? I have not. <clears throat> it's a super kind of unique approach, right? Essentially, you're taking taking some dollars and saying, hey, if you build on top of us, if you build on top of the Cloudflare platform, we'll invest in you. Right, and we'll we'll invest for a certain amount of equity. I believe it's an equity swap investment if they build on top. Um, but it's a it's a great way to simultaneously get adoption for your own platform, get people to um, augment their apps or build on top or configure and maintain you know on top of the Cloudflare infrastructure, while simultaneously saying, well, if that's going to be successful, we're going to take a small piece of that company and grow with you. So it's it's kind of a unique approach I haven't seen before. No, I do like the fact that they're honestly it is a, is a great business model. You look at a, a AWS, Azure, uh, Google Cloud, all of those that subscription model that 
every month you have a bill that sometimes is a little larger than you're expecting, but getting people onto a specific platform and providing a re- another redundant platform to offer other than the big three, I think is a good step in the right direction. Um, Cloudflare is offering that kind of that serverless model where you have a lot of developers trying to get to uh, getting a new app out there that's serverless and adding different redundancy out there uh, and pro- providing financial incentive, I think it's a, a fantastic business idea. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting about this is I don't think Cloudflare is even putting up most of the money themselves. The money is coming <laughs> from partner venture capital firms, Altimeter, Altos, Amplify, Bain, Bessemer. Like it's, it's, they had to go alphabetical order. There's so many, Lightspeed, Meritech. Uh, most of the money is coming from those guys looking to to apply capital in a way that's going to have a reasonable rate of return. And they think that, you know, going on on startups that are building on top of Cloudflare makes sense. So it's an interesting approach and it doesn't even it doesn't even affect Cloudflare's bottom line. Yeah, I think I think it's great. And it's not really even stealing from from them. There's a great quote in there. They're, they said they wouldn't characterize it as stealing market share from anybody, but really earning that market share. Uh, by doing a better product and at a more affordable rate. So I think it's uh, they're definitely looking and gunning for those big three, uh, but there's plenty of pr- plenty of resource to go around and we're only expanding into uh, more platforms that need that serverless uh, and getting some redundancy built across more platforms than the big three, I think is, is a good move anyway. Absolutely, spreading that money around is a no-brainer. If we want to jump to number two on the list uh, today, we got funding nets by raising 410. 410 million uh, in growth funding from KKR and Adrian from Brazil. He's in Brazil. For those of you that don't know where Adrian is today, um, asked for someone to please explain this madness to him. And I think the key thing in this particular one is that they don't ever say, and most, most investments uh, announcements don't really say what percentage of the company they get for that money. Right. And so getting a $410 million funding round growth funding round that could have been, and may have been a hundred percent buyout of NetSpy. Uh, it's impossible to really know what percentage of the company KKR, which is a private equity firm really took in this, but I, I can almost guarantee guarantee it's a majority funding well over 50%. Uh, and they're essentially doubling down in NetSpy's uh, performance and expecting to probably you know, close some uh, operational gaps, close up a little bit of inefficiencies that may exist, excuse me, and find ways to uh, to take NetSpy to the next level with this massive investment. Well, I mean, NetSpy is a, a great company and their performance has been phenomenal. They took that first round of money and, and now they're just getting additional investment from the same places. And so there has to be some level of performance ha- happening. Uh, so on top of the acquisition of Silent Break, that's near and dear to my heart. My cousin's over over there and now at NetSpy as well as my old team. So that acquisition was phenomenal from a experience and pen testing standpoint. But they've also built you know a tax surface reduction product. They've got a breach and attack simulation. Yeah. They opened up their training. So they're branching out and they're filling a whole bunch of services and expanding. So and I think in order to do that at the level and quality at which they're they're expecting because of the people they have there and maintain that talent pool, uh, they really did need some influx of money. I didn't quite think that much money, but you know, that's uh, to be. Yeah. They, they, it's probably not going all to straight operational capital, right? It's probably going to some kind of secondary where many of the stockholders or original stockholders are getting paid out 
on this. It's a partial acquisition is most likely what it comes to. But I do I do appreciate your point about the breadth of product, right? I really didn't realize that NetSpy's product breadth is as big as it is, right? They do everything from pen testing as a service to attack surface management, again, to university training, NetSpy University, which is a training system, attack simulation. They're in such a, such a great... I guess, breadth of offensive security spots that it probably is something that's near and dear to your operational heart from a day-to-day basis too, right? Yeah, yeah, their their level of expertise. I mean, and, and the tools, like the acquisitions that they have acquired were very strategic from filling a gap at getting, leveling up their their pen test, leveling up, you know, all the dark side ops training courses that were at Black Hat, DEF CON, all those uh, were acquired and, and being rolled into the university. And then on top of that, their web app pen testing and tax surface monitoring platforms, like, it's pretty crazy. They're they're doing good things, and it is exciting to see money flowing into places that are doing good things and, and being rewarded properly. Very cool. Uh, there was a couple more raises. Uh, one of the big ones that we had better talk about, Eclipsium. Mm-hmm. Eclipsium lands uh, their 25 Hold on, hold on, T-Rob. Why do we have to talk about Eclipsium? What's the big deal there? Who, who do we know who? there? I mean, that place is Eclipsium. small, right? What? Yeah, twenty-five million. They don't need that. Well, I mean, maybe to afford Paul's cigar habits, and and uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's demanding some expensive things over there. I'm just, I heard I'm just Paul's kidding. very, very expensive. I heard he demands like a massive humidor full of like Cubans and imports and all sorts of amazing stuff, and some bottles of whiskey to go with it. I mean, he's just, he's kind of a diva. He's a little diva. No, Eclipse him <laughs> doing great things uh, in a in a huge huge area that we are now just starting to get. Uh, some traction and visibility around firmware security and device supply chain. Uh, they're one of the few companies doing such big things with uh, very ambitious goals. And Yuri and Alex over there, the founders, are phenomenal. Uh, so really good to see them get their money, get closed, and uh, start to continue the mission of, of doing what they're doing. So I was very Ooh. impressed to see that. T-Rob, how, how closely are you uh, connected to that market? Do you know the competitors to Eclipsium? And if so, are any of them you know, differentiated in a way, and you may not know this and that's fine, but differentiated in a way where, or, or is Eclipsium differentiated in, in a way that kind of can really run over that space? Because I feel like not too many companies are playing where Eclipsium plays. Almost no one can play, uh, at least at the level which Eclipsium is playing. There are other places that are trying to do some firmware scanning, firmware um, security checks. However, Eclipsium has acquired so much of the talent, like a lot of the people that were at Intel that developed the secure boot protocol or that built the chips uh, that they're actually analyzing or even wrote some of the code for the firmware, uh, as well as all the researchers over the years that have done anything around firmware and breaking you know, the very, very low-level, low-lying code in SMM or BMC, uh, IPMI, all of those protocols, they basically hired all that talent, and that's part of their research and development team. So they're uniquely positioned to have a very corner market on the talent pool of people that actually understand how this can be fixed. And then they've built a tool that does that integrity check so well that it is, it's something to be, to be said. So I've not seen anybody competing with the level at which they're doing it. Good for them. I'm so glad Paul went over there. You know, we all, we're all rooting for you, Paul. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he'll get the message out somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, there was some other fundings. Uh, let's see, Web3, obviously uh, Blowfish, which is an interesting name. Seeing says that it's probably got some collisions with uh, encryption algorithms, but uh, it's doing some Web3. They raised $11.8 million, uh, by Paradigm. And I think 
we should be seeing a lot more, I think, Web3, NFT, blockchain uh, kind of investing. I think there's been quite a bit of hold on that just because of all the uncertainty with inside the crypto space, uncertainty from the war, the VCs kind of leveling out their market and uh, following a lot of what the, the normal markets are, are doing. And so I'm surprised to see that much with inside of a Web3 platform. But uh, I'm also surprised we're not seeing more of that given that we're starting to see a little bit of a change and turnaround for some of the VCs. Yeah, you know, this stuff, um, it's funny you bring it up in the way that you bring it up, right? VC and investment related, because I look at these things and I consider myself a relatively smart guy. Like I understand the fundamentals of blockchain. I understand the fundamentals of how this crypto stuff works, how the, how the you know, the chain can operate as a, a ledger for, you know, authenticity and, and confirmation, all those kinds of things. But I just struggle to find like what is the fundamental security requirement that the chain doesn't have on its on its own, like. And I don't know if it's blowfish. I skimmed through this through this particular article, and I feel like they're you know they're trying to do a bunch of things, and it's not very clear exactly what they do. But fundamentally, Tyler, can you help me understand like as a cybersecurity company, how would I even apply to? securing a blockchain or securing a blockchain type of situation is it you know the ability to look for auditing the ability to look for transactions that are outside the norm like what what would web3 or blockchain security really look like fundamentally no i mean that is that is a great point and and even <laughs> even knowing and testing many of these these uh, smart contracts and web3 apps and d apps yeah uh, it is confusing for me so don't feel bad about that because it is <laughs> it is incredibly difficult to understand because they all do it a little different. But at a core, what we're running into is we have a lot of companies that have uh, built in smart contracts for the backside of uh, transactions. You have uh, different DeFi apps, different blockchains backing a company's ability to conduct transactions and make a record of those transactions. And they do that because there is a price uh, and speed return that they're able to get. They can do, you know, um, a quarter million transactions a second at a eighth of the cost uh, to a traditional, you know, payment network. And so they're leveraging a lot of these DeFi and smart contract apps and blockchains and technologies in order to make many of their technologies and backend transactions more efficient and more cost effective. And by doing that, what you end up with is you have different attacks. You've got phishing attacks, you've got um, DApp level attacks where you're you're ending up with different hijacks, DNS hijacks, uh, routing hijacks. Uh, you end up with uh, supply chain attacks, but all of these attacks are really uh, attacking the transaction and the the validity mm. of the smart contracts and the actions that smart contract is taking. And so what's end up happening is there's technologies that are being built in order to validate that the transaction that's being applied to the blockchain, because once it's applied to the blockchain, it's immutable, right? Like your money yep. is gone. There's not really a way to reverse that. So in, in context, in the transaction chain, as it's being done quickly and efficiently, there's technologies and securities being applied to validate and make sure that the, the transactions are valid and, and we're not flagging those for you know anomalous behavior or a malicious activity. So that's a lot of what I think Blowfish is doing is they're looking at the transactions and the wallet and what transaction is happening and whether or not it's a valid. Yeah, so I mean, get to the um, you know the whole there's a lot of talk about regulation and trying to regulate this so that you know cryptocurrencies are more quote usable uh, for more people. And it's one thing to try to validate on the front end, 
But, you know, as we know from just traditional security, attacks are going to happen. People are going to get their money stolen. And, you know, in this case, this isn't, you know, there's no regulation to get the money back. So what what can be done, if anything? Or is this just an area where people, if they're extremely risk averse, they don't go there? When it comes to the currency mean, specifically, you're you're spot on, right? And and this is what most of these companies that are getting funding with inside the Web three or blockchain space, this is what they're doing. They're reacting at the smart contract level with micro contracts or services uh, or API calls that are protecting and validating the connections to the custodial That's wallets the or to the exchanges. And so this is where yeah. the technologies are coming in play. Yeah, that's the key. As I read through this a little bit closer, right, you see there's even comments in here about since integrating our API that they've scanned over 125 million proposed transactions and prevented over 11,000 wallet draining transactions from being signed by the user. Like, I think that's the fundamental key is the prevention level that can do, right? And even if we don't get into the technology specifics of how they do what they do, which is the way I tend to um, tend to work on projects like this, but even if we don't look at that, if you just look at who's involved, right? Machine learning engineers from Meta. Okay, that's some smart people. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. ZeroX or Ox Labs. I'm not, not sure how to pronounce it. MakerDAO. And then most importantly, the one that caught my eye is some, there's some real experts at Trail of Bits. They're about as good as they get when it comes to cybersecurity consulting, uh, research, like advanced technologies. Trail of Bits is one of the best out there. And they're involved in this as well. So, I think this one's kind of interesting. And usually these Web3 things, I roll my eyes and move on, and mostly because I'm an idiot when it comes to the market. And I just don't understand it, right? But this one's really got some perspective and, and some potential. I mean, as you're building things with AI and machine learning to evaluate blockchain, because you're talking about large amounts of data, huge yeah. transactions, you're looking at the right companies and the right blend of technology and people in order to get this right. The model's proper. You've got a lot of people that know the machine learning models that need to be applied. They understand very large data sets. They understand what can go wrong in those very large data sets. So it is it is good to see. And again, as much as I... I was rolling my eyes the same way and like some of this is really hard to digest just because it is so complex and so deep. It yeah. it is something that is fundamental because we are at a point where most major companies have smart contracts backing all kinds of stuff that we rely on day to day. We just don't know it. And so, you know, our day-to-day involvement will probably not get too much further uh, than what we're already doing. But what we have to do to secure that and our interactions with different companies is going to change if you are running enterprise-level networks and you have applications that need to communicate and do transactions of any sort uh, to large corporations because they are, you know, they're already there. They're already using Web3. They're already adopting blockchain technologies to back a lot of their stuff. Yeah. Do you think yeah, for- we'll get to a point where where enterprises have a Web3 slash blockchain specialist on staff, just like they do for, you know, AWS or Azure or, or other things that have become pretty commonplace? Almost all places have a, a at least a block division or blockchain division right now. Like if you're in the financial sector, you've got two or three people, if not more, uh, that are looking at your smart contracts, looking at the the Web3 development. You've got developers that are Web3 specific. Uh, most of the major corporations have been there for a couple of years and it's only going to continue. So yeah, we are, we're gonna start to see that as more of a norm with inside of uh, many of the, the companies that you would see regular job postings for development. That Web3 is gonna be there from a security engineer standpoint for, for a lot of places and AI and ML as well, so. 
Uh, speaking of AI powered, we've got six clicks raises 10 million for AI powered GRC platform as our next article. So, I mean, Great we are seeing that. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that money and funding is, is only going to continue for things like AI and ML. Like, as, as much as those are buzzwords, um, many of the yep. places it, it has to come to fruition where we're leveraging machines and code more efficiently. And the places that know data science and understand the math behind it and why these things actually work and apply, they are making it work in their favor. Now, I will say there's a lot of smoke and mirrors within vendor space. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors in marketing. Um, but there are a lot of initiatives that are leveraging good machine learning models they're evaluating and they have good people on staff to evaluate that. I think we're going to see a lot of companies come out of this where companies aren't going to build their own AI or ML models or, or secure them, they're going to build in a platform or a library or bolt on an integration that allows them to leverage an AI or ML model for what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, the transition to cloud was a massive shift, right? When, when we, when we transitioned to mostly cloud based systems going forward and we're not done with that transition. We're maybe 20, 30% of the way through, but as an investor, you need to be looking at the, the opening salvo of that transition, right? You want to be on the front end of that wave. And it's it's interesting because I've been hearing M, ML AI for, shit, probably eight, eight ten years. And it's it's just never gotten there. It never took hold. It never became the right way to do things. But I do think that's a timing thing. I don't think it's a fact that ML or AI is not the right way to do things. I think it's a timing thing and we needed those systems to mature because they're so difficult to get right. And so what happened early on in the market was a lot of these ML-based or AI-based systems would be rolled out, wrapped in smoke and mirrors, exactly like you said, and and presented as successful. And they were mediocre or moderate or barely were better than a human uh, capability. I think we will get, and I think we're starting to turn the corner on this, that the next investment wave will be behind AI and ML when it comes to cybersecurity. The question is, what positions or what sections of, of cybersecurity get targeted first for that transition to kind of eliminate the human requirement and automate the day-to-day? Yep. And there's going to be security implications. There's going to have to be evaluation of those models, of the attacks that are leveraging those models, the API endpoints, and, and the ability to pollute uh, different parts of that. So there's a whole security aspect to this. And there's there's very few people actually looking at the security side and, and getting up to speed because it's it's a lot of math. It's very difficult to yeah. kind of wrap your mind around and understand the whole picture without getting so far in the weeds that you're you're diving down um, rabbit holes that take yep. a long time to learn. So math is hard, right, Katie? Math, math, math is hard. And, and I think <laughs> Actually, when we're, I mean, I certainly didn't take math beyond what I had to in high school. Um, <laughs> but I think when most people say machine learning, they mean advanced math. And I think when most people say AI, they, they actually mean machine learning. I think there's actually very little AI going on. I think there's a lot of research. I think there's a lot of funding. I think there's a lot of doing in the AI space. But I think when it comes to actual what's in the market, what's available, what are people using, what's coming down the pike in the next year or three, I don't think they mean AI. You know, what's that movie? Um, I, I don't think you you mean what you said, or it's like the Princess Bride oh, or something. Princess Bride. I don't think that. Yeah, I don't. Think I, 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 don't I don't think you know what you're saying when you say AI, because I think really 
most of what's being said when people throw around the AI term is advanced math. And I'm not saying those people aren't amazing and smart. They can do things that I can never, ever do. Um, but it's okay, not the places, the places you know what, doing Katie, though, AI. Though, I think you're I think you're 100 percent right with the comment, right, that AI and ML is immature and not baked and marketers like me have wrapped themselves around the terms and presented it as if it's the panacea to cyber uh cybersecurity functionality and i think SEO you're right but, but I think the question is when when do those systems and when do those models become effective enough to say yeah this is real now and that's that's the the fundamental question i think that is right. i think that is today honestly like yeah i think we're close to it as well i agree with you yeah, the places that are doing good AI and the places that have the neural networks that have been investing in the models and have things that almost look like sentient beings and, and are leveraging those models to do very, very interesting research and very interesting large data set correlation and analysis, they're doing it very well. And those models are getting to the maturity state that some of the models are getting a little scary. Uh, same with ML, the places that are actually leveraging good ML model sets and they know what they're doing from the math side of this and doing the good the good stuff, they are doing and using ML in a, in a capability that we are getting to the place where it is very difficult yeah. for uh, things to slip by the computers. So yeah. I, I, I agree with you, but what I'm going to say is that those companies are so few and far between right now. They are on yes. the cutting edge. They are yeah. There are so few of them that are actually doing what you're saying, and those companies are incredibly exciting. But They're I think the, the companies majority of the time when people say AI, they mean real, really advanced math. Yeah. I would say that yeah, some you know, of the smaller I, I, ones, yes. The, I the places like Meta, like NVIDIA, Facebook, Google, um, General General uh, Avionics, a, a lot of the the larger companies that, that have the engineers and, and the math behind the models that they're using, like they're very large companies, very well funded, and they're putting it into consumer-grade product, which that's the terrifying part is the big places have the ability to test and, and use this on stuff currently happening. And that's when it starts to get interesting from other places that now can adapt and, and buy those models or buy the technology yeah. from them. Yeah, I equate this I equate this to I'm a chess player and I play on chess.com and there's this big controversy right now about these two grandmasters that are playing and one of them is being accused of cheating. And so they went through all of his um, uh, all of his games on chess.com and it became abundantly clear that he played at a perfection level that was far too high, right? And I think the reality is here, you can almost equate that to the breakthrough moment in cybersecurity where AI slash ML, and again, I'm merging those terms because I'm not a pro in that area, becomes valid, right? And it's you can equate that to the chess scene where it's like, okay, we're at the point now where one grandmaster is crushing another grandmaster by cheating with these, these ML-backed systems that are super complex and super smart. And... There's a moment, and you know, in the in the um, sci-fi world, it's that that moment of um, uh, when the AI becomes um, becomes sentient, sentient moment or whatever they call it. Um, you know, I think we're getting to the point where the AI is smart enough now to beat chess, to beat humans, and to actually provide a protection level that's real. But to Katie's point, how many systems are actually using it today at that level? a negligible amount. 90% of it is smokescreen. 90% of it is garbage, right? And as an analyst, whenever I heard that term, and Katie, I sure, you, I sure is going to agree, 
you roll your eyes and go, oh, God, another ML firm, another AI-backed system, right? But at some point, that's going to become reality where that chess player beats the grandmaster. Um, and I think we're getting very close to that from a timing perspective. Hey, Tyler. Do you want yes. to play a game? I love games. Let's do it, Katie. I'll give you my chess.com. Name oh, he missed day. it. Damn it, Tyler. Come on. I, oh, do you want to play a game? No. Um, do, <laughs> yeah, all those games end in the world being destroyed, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, are, are we going nuclear here, Katie, or what are we doing? <laughs> we are nuclear, that's right. <laughs> Thermonuclear I'm warfare. The I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking again, another AI one, right right to your, your point. This the, the problem, and you're right, Katie, the ability for any, even very technical people to validate what is integrated into a product without revealing IP, and or knowing whether or not the AI awesome. product is is as as advertised is very difficult. So you really have to look at who's on the board, who the developers are, what their understanding is of AI and their ability to unravel those complex problems, look at the models they're using, how they're training it. And then that's about as good as you get. Uh, we see another one here where CISOs are, are being able to do real-time, um, was it on Nixia? I believe is how you pronounce it. They got five million in seed funding in order to do real-time AI monitoring of security postures, and this is advertised and and written towards the CISO level. Which, again, the the CISOs and the boards are going to start asking for these things. They're going to wonder what our AI stance is. Uh, are we looking at ML and rolling that into our security posture, our external attack surface reduction wow. roadmap, all of these things? This is this is going to be a regular conversation. So we have to intelligently be able to evaluate products, evaluate what they're asking for, and then identify, you know, is this actually something that is good and can do what it is advertising? And that's uh, going to be a much more difficult proposition for those sitting below that that executive level that has to look at this from a technical standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this um, this one about Anixia here. I think again, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, I, think so. I think they're automating or attempting to automate within with an AI system humans, right? The the first level, and I think that's the right way to to tackle the problem. Don't don't try to bite off all of cybersecurity as a whole or all of a cybersecurity program, bite off the low level stuff, bite off the stuff that's repeatable and common and frequent. And I mean, heck, if you could knock off 10 to 20% of that workload from most businesses, that's a massive amount of workload for a large enterprise, right? So, you know, and it sounds like that's what they're doing, talking about security priorities shifting, talking about uh, enabling security teams to gain a holistic view of the enterprise security environment while, while killing off that lower third of activities that the security team has to handle. I think it's a good way to, to tackle it. It sounds like an interesting company. I mean, there's there's good models out there for behavior and having good baselines and yeah. and being able to use computers effectively where they're where they're able to be used, and that is identifying anomalous behavior, identifying uh, divergence, identifying in large data sets things that would take significant time for a human to find or even script out, like com computationally difficult problems that yep. are heavy on both human and um, technical assets and resources. That's what AI and ML is really designed and should shine. It's never going to replace the human. We're really good at finding patterns. We're really good at thinking creatively. We're really good at leveraging and responding to those things in the proper manner. 
However, machines are very fast at, at evaluating large swaths of data and identifying things that we would probably miss or it would take us a longer time to identify. So I think there's good uses here. I mean, speaking to that, Qualys acquires Blue Hexagon's AI machine learning platform. So yeah, I mean, AI, there's obviously, AI everywhere this week. AI yeah, there's obviously being used and identified and integrated into places because it has its place. But I, I, I'm, I'm with you, Katie. I'm still a little hesitant on how good and how well these uh, these mathematicians and model sets uh, have spent their time in integrating. And again, what level of comfort we're going to adopt uh, just allowing the machine to handle things. Are we going to get lazy with that? Are we going to be able to focus more time on more important things? Like that's kind of the hope, but I think it has a two-sided sword there that really needs to be addressed and make sure that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, and I think I think that, you know, the advanced math or even machine learning, I think a lot of this is machine learning. I think, you know, the pivot point to, to sentience is a... It, it's just beyond where so much of this technology is, but we can leave that aside for the moment because I could literally argue that for hours. Um, but in terms of the heavy computational analysis across those large swaths of data, without automation, we're buried. I mean, I just read something this week that says um, something like 40% of technology professionals' time is spent on manual tasks that could very, very easily be automated. So in a typical 40 hour work week, that means approximately 16 hours, right? And we know that most people in tech, in cybersecurity work more than 40 hours a week. So, so that's just a huge amount of time that's being wasted. And, you know, we're talking about things like AI and ML, but really a lot of this is, is automation. You know, leveraging math, of course, but a lot of it comes down to automation. And and you're exactly right. Like, there is no need for humans to be doing this. We have so much higher reasoning um, and humans build machines, right? So um, machine, maybe there'll be a, a pivot point where machines overtake human. I don't think we're quite there yet. So freeing up that time for correlating all this data it, it's a waste of time. We're never going to be automated out of jobs. We might have to learn new skills. We might have to drop things that, you know, uh, people have done and we might need to train them up. And, you know, that's, we can argue about where public funding goes, but like we don't have people trained to drive horse and buggies right now <laughs> either. Right. Or, or, you know, how many people are, are really skilled in, metalworking or fixing oil lamps like we evolve and we will have to evolve our workforce to deal with it but i don't think humans are ever ever going to be automated out of a job they might be forced to learn things that they don't want to learn necessarily but um yep. i think history, that's, history will repeat itself <laughs> right. yeah and i think that's where things like blue hexagon you know is it true ai uh, maybe on the precipice. I don't know. Haven't haven't really dug in there too much. But I think we're talking more about automation and machine learning. But it's absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. Especially with large data lakes like Qualys is dealing with. That's an interesting yeah. one. 
Another interesting one is a new technology called Hey Login. He had this on here, read through the page, was trying to understand just how they're doing this, and I get it. I think it's another good way to get to kind of that passwordless state, get to a point where we're leveraging things other than master passwords. Their big, their big push is we don't have a master password like other solutions. It's two-factor secure by design. I am a little... Uh, a little wary of that claim because mm -hmm. they're essentially pushing a a request out to a phone and you're you know saying hey this is me logging in now and you're authorizing that that technically is not two factor like we'll we'll get down to the nuts and bolts of it and we've already talked about today uh, issues with uh, phones and having phones for uh, authorization devices so. Uh, well, I think it's a great step in the right direction. I would like to kind of play with it, see see what they're doing differently. They've got some good crypto algorithms in there. It looks like they're trying to think a little differently about passwords, making it work with just about everything. I'm a little hesitant about leveraging uh, my phone as the, the source for a password uh, right this second without a, another factor being involved. So uh, great idea. Interesting product to go check out and look at for yourself, yeah. but I'm not as convinced as as. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. I'm not convinced either. They have a total of, according to Crunchbase, they have a total of 1.9 million uh, euros in funding, which is next to nothing f across five investors, probably all angels, and one to ten employees. Um, look, man, uh, if you do it, great. If you're doing it in a secure way, that's wonderful. I think it needs to be validated, vetted by pros like T. Rob for sure. Um, and quite frankly, um, pick a better company name. I think it's a stupid company name, but that's just me being grumpy old man. Sure. I but I can think on the of other hand, <laughs> yeah, on the other <laughs> hand, if you do need a master password, hey, log in. I'm really skeptical of your technology is a great master password. <laughs> yeah, that would work well, Katie. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, like, again, a different approach to passwords. I'm all for getting rid of passwords because, you know, I, I have a large swath of billions of passwords on at my disposal. So they're usually all pretty horrible. Uh, and no one does good. And someone else, just to clarify for a listening audience, they are someone else's password. Yeah, <laughs> they are someone else. else's passwords. <laughs> <laughs> These are not your personal passwords. <laughs> well, they may be, but... <laughs> I'm sure mine are in there somewhere. They are procured. Uh, we'll just we'll we'll just say they have been procured from various places. They're procured and analyzed and notified. Uh, there's a couple other tools to look at. Some, uh, in fact, two different tools around adversary emulation and simulation. Uh, those two words being interchangeable and not being the same thing, but that's for another day. Uh, Adversary simulation for blue teamers. I think this is going to be more common. We've started to see this already where, again, pen tests are usually not the answer for good security testing. And I'm a pen tester, so that's obviously <laughs> kind of not the, the way that most people think. But really, most places have a maturity model that they can leverage other tools, tabletops, purple teams, uh, simulation tools, attack surface reduction tools, all the things that you should be doing. I think that is much better use of your money, budget, and time uh, rather than a pen test. So seeing this developed for blue teamers specifically, I think we're going to see a lot more tools like this. And I think there are some great tool links in here for doing some of the things that you could and should do as, as a security team yourself before you bring in a pen tester or a red team. 
Uh, if yep. you're at the point where you're ready for a red team, then you've done all the diligence and I better not find any exploitable things and it better be a pretty good challenge for me because I'm pretty expensive otherwise. So I'm <laughs> very expensive. At least that's what I've heard. At least that's what I've been told. <laughs> T-Rob super expensive. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, again, there's a, another one for micro emulation plans. Um, I don't know what this one was called. It was, um, I didn't see it in there, but another two blue team uh, adversary emulation and simulation tools with inside of the links. Uh, go ahead and check those out, securityweekly.com, ESW, uh, and click on the episode, which this episode is 291. Uh, let's see, looking further, any other ones you guys really want to cover? What's going on? This was an interesting article. I actually read this one all the way through the what's going on in cybersecurity VC investments. Yeah. I thought, I that, thought was, this that was fantastic. And Will that was a, was on a fantastic week. article. For a couple reasons, right? Ryan Narain is one of the best journalists in cyber. Like I've known him forever. He is top freaking notch. And then Will Lynn, who's been a guest on this show multiple times. Sadly, I've not been able to interview him. I think I, I got a chance to interview him one time. Will Lynn is just a freaking brilliant. And then Cedra, uh, Ahmed Lafort was the other guest. And I think I read this one top to bottom too. And I don't read every article top to bottom. We just see so many of them. But this one really gives you great insight into trying to understand the thought process behind how investments have worked in cyber for the last couple of years and how things have really changed. And and one of the things I got from this was just a fairly open discussion by Will and, and Cedra saying, look, we don't know. We don't know what the future is going to hold, right? The last five years, if you ask these same interview questions to these same people, they'd be like, yep, everything's going up and right. Everything's going to triple in value in the next two years. And now there's this constant state of worry and concern by investors saying, are we at the bottom? Like literally when you lose 50 to 70% of your valuation across your portfolio, it makes you rethink how you're going to approach cyber and, and will an up and right come. And I think at the end of the day, everybody knows it's going to come back, but it's a function of when and it's a function of timing. You know, when do you get in? If you get in now, you got to hold for a certain number of years, three, five years before you can expect a return. And so anybody who's interested in how VC works in cyber and what the future might hold definitely has to read this article. Yeah, I think getting into that that growth mode and, and understanding why the growth has changed, how you can, if you are a, a startup, a founder, if you're working with inside of one of the uh, companies that was funded, like what that means for you, how you actually button down and, and look at your burn rate. You look at things like, you know, you may only have two to three years of, of runway, but you have five years to get your valuation up to the point where it needs to be. That provides a pretty big problem that you need to address yep. beforehand before getting to that problem. And those are things that uh, the whole article is, is fantastic. It gives you a lot of good insight into things to think about, things to prepare for, and ways to actually uh, get through this kind of uh, uncertain time. Yeah, and the key here, and, and they iterate it throughout the article, and, and Will said it last time he was on as well, is really, it's profitable growth now. Yep. It's profitable growth. Change your mindset. We are in it for a, a long haul. And and is that going to be 18 months? Is that going to be 36 months? They both say very clearly they don't know. They give their best guesses, but it is the long haul. And if you expect a quick flip, you're in the wrong game right now. Yeah, you know, I think I think there's a, a contrarian view to be taken here to a point, right? When everything was asinine crazy and you didn't have to worry about anything about profitability, about revenue, you know, you just needed to just 
straight up burn and, and grow as fast as possible. When that was the world, there was a case for, hey, slow it down, find a way to get profitable. You're going to be much more healthy. And there's a number of companies that took that approach, right? Early on, Rumble did that. Early on, uh, Hamantra's company, um, Data Theorem did that. They didn't take much capital, if any, and they grew it in a healthy way right, right from day one. And they're all sitting pretty right now. But I also think it lends itself to a counterpoint today, meaning at some point, the downward pressure on the market, the downward pressure on the VC valuations will become so low that the counterpoint of, hey, we need to figure out how to grow faster and burn harder will come back into play, right? And it's one of those situations where, you know, when everybody's greedy, you run for the hills. When everybody's worried and fearful, you should be greedy, right? That's general market philosophy. And I think it, I think it comes into play when it comes to cyber investing as well. I think there's an opportunity right now for companies being born today to start growing faster and harder over the next three to five years and use the market momentum as it returns to hit escape velocity. It's going to be neat to see how this plays out. Sure. It's not all that different from just general stock market investing. Correct. Yep. 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 That is that is the hard part is knowing knowing what you want to do and then seeing uh, those that do it differently how they actually play out. Buy low, uh, sell high. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, I've had that backwards this year. You got you got to read you got to remind me a little more frequently, Katie. <laughs> yeah, my my, crypt, my crypto uh, was definitely that way this year. <sighs> that was rough. <laughs> uh, what lurks in the shadows of cloud security? That was an interesting one. Things we all kind of know. Um, there's a lot of tools being developed. A lot of people uh, looking at and the focus shifting to making sure your cloud security is button down, you're looking at configurations, uh, there's tools for you know cloud native app protections and identifying those. I think people are at that point where we all know that the cloud is here, we all have moved to the cloud and then moved back to a nice hybrid because we can't do just a cloud unless you're a very specific type of company or vertical. And so we're at that point where we have both environments to care about. And I don't think we fully have an understanding of the all of the implications for cloud security. Yeah, there's a general configuration. There's a lot of the attack surface management and automated tools of checking. But the real security implications of single sign-on, what the business risk is, where things can actually go wrong, and then the consistent changing, the very fast pace of changing uh, things and adopting things in the cloud for development and prod and not keeping a lot of that separate. I think that's where we're making a lot of the mistakes and that's where I'm finding a lot of the, the vulnerabilities to companies. Yeah, I, I break cloud up into a few tiers. I have the configuration state, which would be your CSPM market, the runtime protection of the workloads or code in operation, which would be maybe a CNAP or CWPP or even a, an observability play. I think there's um, an API kind of play that's going to happen because of the breadth of application overlay that will occur. And then the one that I think not as many people are talking about would be companies like Permiso that are doing, hey, we don't, we're not going to even focus on any of that stuff. We're going to focus on the interplay of authentication, authorization, and accounts, and who yes. does what. Focus on the tracking of the individual accounts, the individual tokens, the actions that they take, and look for uh, deviation and anomalous behavior in those spaces. And there's there's some great companies that are targeting that fourth area as well. I think that's a great place to be. I mean, API security and identity uh, security yeah. for single sign-on is huge. I would add, actually add, and I hope at some point they add that into their repertoire, is uh, the permissions, app permissions yeah. and the permissions that identities are being provided via those JWT SAML tokens and you know, all of the things that are that are providing identity to us uh, 
there's a lot of over permissioned and you know, oh, yeah. there's a lot of weirdness with inside of apps and, and cross tenancy and, and communications that happen. So yeah, I uh, think that's space. a massively growing area in the very, very near future for sure. Yep. And the very last article we have is uh, the art of selling to cybersecurity people. I think this was definitely a, a good article, especially if you're in sales or if you're trying to sell uh, not only yourself, but maybe a consultancy or sell yourself uh, selling your service. Uh, it covers a lot of things. The TLDRs, you know, build a relationship, skip your show and tell. The canned scripts are canned. They're they're going to get canned. They're not wor- worth doing. And then integration matters. All of those points are very accurate. And I think anytime anybody sells to me, if they already have a relationship, yeah, I'll listen to you because I trust you and you're there for a reason. You know, that's where Eclipsium, I look at their product. I see what they're doing because I trust the people over there. I trust the relationships I've built. But that would only happen because of relationship. I The show and tell piece, I ask for that once you're to that point. And then there's just no no canned scripts. The integration is is great. Uh, and places that are doing these things from a selling standpoint, I think is is definitely how you want to sell to high performers, high highly intelligent people, and people that get mass bombarded with ads every single day and have to know a lot of products anyway, and the ins and outs of the uh, skeletons in the closets of each of those products. So that's a good article. Yeah, highly recommend this article. Um, Mike Prevet is the author. Uh, I recommend signing up to, if you're interested in the funding world in cyber, he runs a newsletter, a phenomenal newsletter called Security Funded. Sign up to his newsletter, read this piece. It's a great piece. Tell Mike you said hello. He's a very, very friendly guy. Uh, connect with him. It's, it's, he's a good person to get, get to know. Excellent. Well, with that, thank you, Tyler and Katie. Appreciate you guys joining me today and uh, helping me get this uh, show done while Adrian's gone. Adrian, we miss you. You're the best. Your illustrious hair is definitely better than mine. But, hey, we held down the fort. And a big thanks to everybody listening this week uh, for Enterprise Security Weekly. Have a good week.